Hi everyone, it's been a few months since I uploaded an episode, but Disability Saves the World is officially back. You can call this Season 2 of the series. The new schedule for the podcast will be one episode every two weeks. Don't forget to add the podcast to your library so you'll be notified when new episodes are uploaded. For now, let's get to today's episode. This podcast brings you insights from leading experts in disability and MAD studies from around the world. You'll hear about the research and work of disabled scholars, activists, artists, and our allies. You'll also get some insight into their lives, their favorite non-DS activities, hobbies, and adventures. Most importantly, you'll get to hear how they think disability can save the world. My name again is Fadi Shinuda. I use he, him pronouns. I identify as a fat, cis, disabled man of color. On today's show, I am joined by Tracy Tigwell, the Research Project Manager for Revision, the Center for Arts and Social Justice at Guelph University. Tracy, who uses she, they pronouns, is a community organizer, researcher, activist, and cultural producer who has been in the folds of Toronto's queer arts communities over the past many years in performance, video, analog photography, and writing. Tracy is also a fat activist, working with Fat Rose, an organization building a more radical fat liberation movement. I got a chance to talk to Tracy in mid-May about her work. Even before the pandemic, fat people deal with extraordinarily disabling conditions in the medical systems. That has become even more concerning when we start talking about survival in some cases. Their life outside of academia. She's like, okay, thanks. And then she sort of tries to start moving in this sea of people towards that space. And I'm just like, jaw drop. And to ask them, how they think disability can save the world. Hi, Tracy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Hi, Fady. It's so great to have you. I want to jump right into segment one, what I like to call inside the project, the research, the work, the art. I want to start by asking, how did you get involved in disability studies, in math studies, in this field, in this discipline? Oh, yeah. Well, I come to disability studies, in fact, through um, fatness, through my own fat identity and and eventually my activism, um, and then eventually through family and community connection. And um, I came into adulthood in a lesbian feminist community that included the leadership of disabled and deaf women and trans people. And that really introduced me as a pretty young adult in my very early, my, actually at 20, introduced me to disability and deaf culture, accessibility. And this really helped shape how I understand myself and my own body in relationship to my fatness, to my ability, to my disability. And then later it became more about academics. Hmm. Um, I did MA studies in theory, culture, and politics that explored the body and affect and feeling, time and politics, and ecstatic experience as personal political openings and 
um, fat studies and disability studies really help shape that thinking. Um, and I would say most of all, it's grounded in my own fat identity. Um, yeah. And that brought me eventually to the, some of the work I'm doing now with Fat Rose and the Nobody is Disposable Coalition. And all of this really is, is grounded in the value of my life, in the value of fat and disabled lives in general, and um, about broadening the way that we think about disability and with the way we think about fatness to include the ways in which we actually live it. And so uh, is there a specific kind of topic or project that you did want to talk to us about today, one at the intersections of like disability and fatness? I think I'd really like to talk to you about some of the organizing I've been doing and some of the work that we've been doing collectively through Fat Rose and how that's connected to the Nobody is Disposable campaign. Um, this is all really relevant anyway, but especially in the midst of um, the coronavirus pandemic, some of the things that we're working towards become even more relevant, even more poignant. Of course. So um, maybe we'll start with a question about like, how did you get involved in Fat Rose? Oh, wow. Okay, so I have a history, a long history of working in fat activism, um, kind of at the intersection with cultural production, performance, and art. Um, and I have never really left that part of my work or ethos behind, but when I started seeing calls for interest in um, a fat collective group, I don't even know if at the time um, that messaging was about organizing or what it was, but I think it was a fat study group on fat liberation. About a year and a half ago, maybe, I got really excited and I joined right away. So I was excited to be thinking and learning again with other fat people and other fat and disabled people. Um, so I jumped on that opportunity and it really has grown into um, a cross movement organizing group. So organizing fat people um, into intersectional fat liberation, thinking about how that connects and interlocks with other social movements and a lot of us having had the experience of being in so-called radical spaces or so-called progressive or liberal spaces and fatness, even sometimes in disability centered spaces, fatness being sort of um, left under the mat at the door, mm. you know, like still encountering a lot of fat phobia in um, our social and political um, interactions. And so, so many of us wanted to kind of bring uh, fatness to the table um, and talk about how it interacts and how it intersects with many of the other liberation movements we're involved with around race, around ability, around uh, disability, uh, class, and so on. Yeah, I mean, like, and as a like a fat identified person myself, it's so exciting to hear right of this group. Uh, and to kind of look through the website I, as I was earlier today and kind of finding the things that you're doing. I mean, even just the Instagram page to me seems like a radical piece of um, like cultural production 
And yeah. like all these fat people represented all these fat ideas, right? Like exactly. being so, so presented. Um, but the fat body is always under attack, right? And yeah. in particularly now when it comes to the pandemic, um, when, you know, I think uh, our bodies can become, um, you know, considered uh, uh, medically inferior. And so therefore, you know, um, less likely to, to get the attention of medical professionals. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about the organizing that's happening around, uh, around um, you know, the pandemic and, and ensuring that people know their rights. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just start by saying that even before the pandemic, um, fat people deal with extraordinarily disabling conditions in the medical systems that we encounter. And that has become even more um, concerning when we start talking about um, crisis care or triage care or care that sort of begins to make judgment on who deserves care and treatment and survival in some cases. Um, Fat people are already understood as closer to death, having shorter lifespans Um, even though um, that's not necessarily factual. Um, And even if it were, we deserve care and we deserve survival and we deserve lives. So Fat Rose is part of the Nobody is Disposable Coalition. um, And you can find that website at nobodyisdisposable.org. And I'm sure, Katie, you'll connect. I will link it, yeah. Yeah, link it in in this episode notes. Um, You can also search for nobody is disposable hashtag because it's actually taken off quite amazingly and is being used very vastly around North America and even in the UK. Um, And nobody is disposable coalition is really working hard against discrimination in triage during this uh, pandemic. Um, right now they have, we have an open letter to care providers and hospitals that you can find on the website, a know your rights toolkit that outlines the rights of fat and disabled Americans actually. Um, although there is a UK document on the site as well, and we're currently working on adapting this to a Canadian context, you and I, Fadi, so that's really exciting. (laughs) Um, But the Know Your Right Toolkit is, the Know Your Rights Toolkit is not, it is American-centric, U.S.-centric, but it also provides tons of strategies for getting the care that you need, surviving extraordinarily biased medical systems. So it's not um, useless to folks who aren't American. It actually has lots of um, scenarios, case studies, um, phrases that you can practice saying, things you should bring with you to to um, an emergency room. So all kinds of really relevant and helpful information, um, even if the right sections are really American focused. Um, And this this campaign is, is also bringing to the forefront how important it is to think about fat bias and racism and how they work together. And that these weight discriminatory policies and practices, especially under triage, are disproportionately affecting people of color. Mm. In part, that's because of um, the comorbidity approach. So if you have these coexisting um, 
conditions or characteristics or you live with certain uh, health situations, um, you may be less likely to receive triage care um, than someone who they perceive will have um, a better quality of life or better survival, uh, better chances of survival. Um, and we know that people of color and actually poor people as well, people of lower socioeconomic status have higher rates of certain conditions. This is what the social determinants of health has shown us. Um, and so um, we live with comorbidities more often than other people, things like high blood pressure or diabetes or other things. And disabled bodies in particular are um, seen as um, less deserving of survival as our fat bodies. And so, um, the medical field is re-discriminating based on race, basically. And we have a whole history of that in Canada and in the US. Um, and I think we're seeing too right now that people of color are, are the, the people in essential worker jobs. Yeah. They're at higher risk of contracting a virus. Um, they do less well once they have it. Um, because of all the things I've been mentioning and less likely to get care based on these protocols. So uh, Nobody's Disposable is really working towards fighting for care that's not based on comorbidities and really grounded in this idea that all lives have value. All lives are worth nurturing and surviving and caring for. Um, and it also, you know, this, this hashtag, this concept of nobody is disposable um, links us to all kinds of people, all kinds of bodies, peoples in, people in prisons, mm. people who without housing, drug users, people whose lives are perceived to be disposable. Um, so I think that's part of the reason why it has really just exploded because it is so intersectional, because it makes these important connections between fat oppression and other forms of oppression, this piece that Fat Rose was trying to address from the get-go, you know, like how do we bring this into an intersectional understanding of how we all experience capitalism, patriarchy, white supremacy, ableism, um, and how that, you know, there's a complex set of things going on when you add in the fat experience. I wonder if you could tell, if you know of how people have taken up the document or have even just the hashtag, right, in compelling and interesting ways, do you have any stories that you might be able to share? Oh gosh, I don't have anything in mind, but I do know also because I am completely enamored with the Fat Rose um, Instagram account um, that there's a lot of activity. There's lots of um, other um, social movement groups and individuals really taking it up, taking selfies, holding up signs that say, um, that tell personal versions of yeah. not feeling disposable, um, also employing the hashtag. Um, so I wish I had a better story for this but i don't sorry <laughs> no but i think i think that's actually quite exciting right to hear that like uh you know i've seen these like 
people are holding, you know, just eight and a half, eight and a half by 11 pieces of white paper. Right. And they've, and they've, they've taken the time to construct a message on this little piece of paper, this regular piece of paper, right. That, uh, tries to tell the world that they're more valuable, right. Than all the dominant discourses out there say they are. And I think, I think that's a really talk about cultural production or art or, activism all kind of rolled up into one. Yeah. And I think it has been a really um, accessible way for people to get what is happening here. Like for us to tell our own stories and to have our faces be shown and to say like, I value my life and I value your life. And um, um, these approaches to understanding me aren't good enough. They're, and they're unacceptable and we aren't disposable. So I think it has been really creative and, and connective and and really powerful yay that's so exciting another thing we've been doing is um we've started a series of trainings that are um really helpful around advocating for yourself knowing your rights um knowing practicing how to talk about Mm. um, um navigating healthcare. My friend and collaborator, Max Airborne, pointed out in the first workshop that one of the major strategies fat people use to navigate healthcare is to bring along a buddy, to bring along an advocate or a friend or an ally who will help witness and help keep healthcare providers on track and just generally support someone who's navigating this very difficult situation, this very biased experience and system where fat bodies are pretty much relegated to um, um, like worthlessness and where most of our health conditions are blamed on our size, our weight. Um, And that strategy of bringing a buddy is currently taken away from us because if you enter an emergency room because of having coronavirus or for any reason right now, you cannot bring someone with you. So this strategy is, you know, not available. And so learning how to talk about, um, learning how to ask for what you want, how to assert that, how to um, read the room in a way and figure out what to ask for next um, is something we've been practicing. And that's been really intense and very powerful. Um, And we're developing a second training right now on um, a kind of like broader sense, a broader approach to advocacy. So we'll be opening those workshops up really soon as well. I mean, you know, um, in trying to come up with the Know Your Rights Canada, um, you know, or one that's specifically for Canada alongside you, you know, we can come up with scenarios, we can come up with different ways of saying things. But there is nothing, I think, like the act of practicing that can really like hammer home the difficulty sometimes mm-hmm. asking for something uh, can be, um, especially when that thing you're asking for is your survival, mm-hmm. right? Or your like continued existence or for care even. Um, when, you know, uh, I feel like as, as fat people, we're often been told to be so small and to take up less room. And now we're actually actually asking those same people to no take up as much room as you can, right? Be as loud as you can, um, 
because that's maybe the only way that you might be able to survive. Exactly, Fady. And it, it is, it is a really important thing that we need to learn to do on our own in this mm. context, because we don't, we can't take people in there with us who might right. do it for us. Um, we are in the training also talking about um, how an ally or a loved one or someone you trust or an advocate might do that work from outside the institution of the hospital. But, you know, as you pointed out, this can be the difference between surviving and not surviving under the current, current pandemic. And although we're, you know, um, this we're recording this in the middle of May, and a lot of people will think that, you know, the pandemic is winding down. Um, we all know that a second wave is coming, and the second wave is going to be stronger than the first wave, according to all the historical data on pandemics. Um, and so um, this is going to be an important, these are going to be important documents for people to have access to um, coming forward. and. Uh, and I'm really glad that, like, you know, that you guys started this off, right? That Fat Rose began this um, um, and is teaching us how to protect ourselves. Yeah, and I think this connects back to some of the original, um, I mean, I think lots of fat people know this, but um, some of, and live it, and we embody it. And, but I think it comes back to some of Fat Rose's original intent around, um, around having a structural analysis of fat oppression, moving beyond body positivity, um, looking to liberation movements to help us um, bring fatness to the table, to help understand, help other movements understand that fatness is one of the, these intersecting points of oppression for so many of us, and, and is in part being perpetuated by so many of our so-called allies or, or allied movements. Mm. And, you know, I understand body positivity and personal transformation as one important part of fat liberation. But we are also extremely aware that it's important to build alternative realities, alternative truths, alternative pathways into um, living in fat bodies and to understand that, um, we have to change oppressive structures and systems moving beyond kind of like individualist thinking or individualist responsibility to seeing fatness as something that's more, more complex than that. Hearing you talk about this brings me so much joy. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> um, and I'm so glad that this work is being taken up. Okay, so let's jump into segment two, what I like to call the middle or the liminal. And this is when I get to ask you um, questions about who you're crushing on. That's the first one. Um, so do you have a current crush, someone either you can't stop reading or you can't stop recommending? Well, Fady, I am someone who has endless amounts of crushes. So... <laughs> Can I name more than one? Yes, of course. <laughs> I feel like this is part of being a Libra. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that I am completely crushed out on Sandra Solovey, who is a fat disabled uh, lawyer based in California who has done so much work over the last decades around 
um, legal structural approaches to fatness and, and human rights for fat and disabled people. Um, she always blows my mind every time I hear her speak. And um, I owe a lot of my understanding of um, legal and legal structural uh, perspectives to, to Sandra. Um, and she's published many things in academic books and um, journals. So I think, I can't name anything, but we'll be able to easily link to, to Sandra. I also am in huge admiration of Deshaun Harrison, who is a non-binary abolitionist and community organizer. I think they're based in Atlanta. And um, I, I recently read something by Deshaun called Fat People Must Become a Priority to the Left, um, which really speaks to so much of what Fat Rose um, is aiming to get at. And then maybe my biggest academic crush at the moment is Caleb Luna, who's an academic, um, a PhD candidate. Uh, I think at UC Berkeley, I think in performance studies, um, but Caleb does um, work on, I think on historicizing cultural representations of fat embodiment with a really um, anti-colonial lens. Caleb is a fat queer of color, um, also a performer, artist, and poet themselves. Um, and their Instagram page brings me so much breath, so much life. I don't, I, I don't even know that I would be the same person without the last several years of Caleb Luna's Instagram. Oh, wow. And their academic writing is also really um, right on. Those are three awesome people to introduce to, you know, whoever is listening, including myself. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, you are someone who, as I said in the intro, you know, is a community organizer, is an artist, uh, is someone involved in academia. I wonder if you have advice for young people in any of those fields, kind of starting out, um, what would you tell them? Gosh, I mean, I feel like any advice I give would be so um, maybe canned sounding, really like cliched, but I really think um, following your intuition is really helpful, like being yourself, um, coming to the things you're working on with your own truth, um, I think really leads to um, new pathways and new, under new ways of understanding um, whatever it is you're passionate about. And I think the other piece of advice I would say is stay really connected. I stay really connected to yourself, but to your family or your friends, um, to your communities, um, because um, that's where all the juice is. That's, that's the way we, we stay grounded. That's the way that we, you know, staying connected is how we avoid objectifying people or um, abstracting from people or communities is by actually, you know, staying in conversation, being a part of, um, yeah, that's what I would say. That's good. I mean, I think, I don't think that's canned at all, actually. Okay. I haven't heard that one before about staying close to community. I think it really sits with me, like, 
as some great advice, right? As someone who has created a chosen family, right? But Mm -hmm. um, is also very much connected to like the community that I'm part of, the diaspora that I'm part of, um, and tries to homogenize them, right? As much as possible to make things easy, but they're very much very heterogeneous, right? They're like very different this group Mm -hmm. of people that I try to kind of clump together. So I think that's actually really excellent advice. But yeah, like when you stay connected, like you, you can learn from the pieces that um, are part of you and speak to you. And you can learn from the pieces that um, have, have helped you change. You know, that's when I look at some of my, um, family of origin and some of my communities of origin and, um, and look at how I've um, grown and chosen um, some of those same things and, and some different things. It really has helped shape who I've become as a thinker and a creator and how I move through the world. Okay. Let's move on to segment three, what I like to call outside the project, the research, the work, the art. Um, who is the most famous person you've met and what was that experience like? <laughs> uh, Fady, I've met so many famous people. I've never met any. How has everyone <laughs> met so many famous people? Where, <laughs> Where do I begin? <laughs> That's like unfair. Like they need to spread the wealth here. <laughs> well, I guess, I guess I should, I, I guess I should say that famous is, fame is relative. And it so is, yes. what does it mean? Like, are they academically famous? Are they, are they gamers? queer famous as we like to say (laughs) (laughs) but I will tell you one story that I love which is going to Carnegie Hall to see a Christmas concert in like the mid-2000s I went to see the Wainwright family Christmas concert I'd been living in Brooklyn with my girlfriend for one short year and um, I was really excited that I might have the possibility to see the Wainwright family play together and um, I'm like such a longtime fan of, of so many of them, of the McGarrigals and then Martha and Rufus Wainwright. And so I saw they were having like this family concert. And um, so I'm enamored by the fact that I'm seeing this concert. I'm enamored by the space itself because it's Carnegie Hall. And I Carnegie was a really Hall, yeah. musical kid. And I also really loved Alvin and the Chipmunks. And they were obsessed with playing Carnegie Hall. <laughs> So it was like this iconic space and I'm in the foyer. I've just arrived. I'm with my girlfriend. We're in the foyer. It's packed. Like 3000 people are, you know, filing into the foyer. Wow. And someone standing really close to me says, do you know where the ticket booth is? And I turn around and it's Parker Posey. And I'm like, it's Parker Posey. Oh my God. To me. And I tried to I'm such a fan person I'm such a gushy fan person that I'm like I really try to pull it together and play it cool (laughs) and I just with like a flat face say yeah I think it's over there (laughs) she's like okay thanks and then she sort of tries to start moving in this sea of people towards that space and I'm just like jaw dropped and staring at Parker Posey being like Parker Posey just spoke to me I love Parker Posey. She's so great. She's so cool. 
like the only good part of that Superman Returns movie. Like, is the, <laughs> like, I love that story. I fully thought you were going to uh, run into a Wainwright. Parker I Posey know. Came out of nowhere. I, I love didn't, that. I didn't. Parker Posey. Okay. Um, so what is an obscure fact you carry around? And uh, when, kind of, when do you pull it out when you, there's a lull in the conversation? <laughs> I, um, I don't think I pull out obscure facts when there's a lull in the conversation. <laughs> but I do know a few obscure facts. Um, do share. <laughs> I wanted to say, I want to say one, but I don't really know how to pronounce the language. So I'm a little embarrassed to actually share this with you, Fady. But one obscure fact that I know is that chickens um, drop their eggs, their feces, and their urine all from the same hole. They use one hole for everything. And there's this mechanism. It's inside that sort of turns off the other functions so it can do what it needs to do. <laughs> so amazing. It's called the, I can't say it, cochlea. I want to say cochlea, but I know that's the part of the ear. Um, I can't say the word. That's okay. Okay, but another really amazing weird fact that I know is that I'm from Nova Scotia, um, which is traditionally uh, Mi'kmaq territory. Um, and has a very vast, I mean, culturally vast um, Mi'kmaq community now. Anyway, when you're in Nova Scotia, you're never more than something like 50 kilometers from the ocean ever. So it's a very small province and it's almost surrounded by water. It's a peninsula. Um, and so you're never really more than like a 20 to 30 minute drive from the ocean, no matter where you are. And even more, cool is that you're even closer to a freshwater source so there's like over 3,000 lakes in this tiny province so everywhere you go is water and I really love that about uh, Nova Scotia. I love Nova Scotia I've only been there once but um, uh, I I got to drive there quite a bit because I had a rental car and I, I remember that I thought that I was driving through a jungle of Christmas trees I'd never seen so many Christmas trees in one space before. Um, and like you're driving on a highway, you're the only car there. And it's just, you know, fields and fields and fields of Christmas trees. And I thought it was so magical. And I thought if, it, if I was here during the snow, I would just think I was in like transported to like a magical Christmas movie set or something. <laughs> I think Nova Scotia produces a lot of Christmas trees, actually. Okay, that makes sense. There's then. also still a lot of trees in Nova Scotia. Whenever I fly into Nova Scotia, my girlfriend, Jamie, is often just completely amazed by only seeing trees and water. Like, that's all you see. You don't see development. You don't no. see hotels. You don't, even on the coast, you don't see that stuff. And she, who's American, is always amazed that I that I that that Nova Scotia is just so still so unpopulated. Yeah. <laughs> Where did you go? Where did you go in Nova Scotia? I actually um I went to Halifax and um but I was there to actually interview Catherine Frizee who oh, yes. is a is a very famous uh, disability uh um scholar and rights activist and um I got to be with her for 3 days. 
um, in her house interviewing her for a project that I was a part of. It was like the coolest. Wow, Fady. Yeah, it was very, very cool. It was like an exciting, that's my famous person story. <laughs> Seriously, and I was going to say academic crush. Number of, four. Like, root, yeah. uh, total of root. Doesn't Catherine Frazee live in the valley, in the Annapolis Valley? Do you I know? Think, I think now they've moved um, to, yeah, like somewhere very warm in the U- U.S. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay, okay. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. All right. I want to know, what are you reading now? What is the book that's on your bedside table? Oh, I'm, I'm having a really hard time focusing on reading during the pandemic. Yes. I feel like extremely distracted all of the time. But a book I keep coming back to and sort of picking up and reading sections of is Care Work, Dreaming Disability Justice mm. by Leah Lakshmi Pepshna Samarasena who's a queer disabled femme writer. She's also an organizer and artist and educator. Um, And um, it really is, it is the kind of book you can pick up and read a section of and just um, kind of feel punched in the gut Mm. each time. She's always saying the most poignant, incredible things. Um, And it's really grounded in, in life experience and community experience and in um, disability justice. All right. And what hobby um, do you enjoy or um, what activity do you do that brings you joy? Gosh, well, right now, one of the things that's bringing me joy is having a backyard. I feel like I live in a very, I live in a very busy neighborhood and The first month of the pandemic, my neighborhood was quite quiet, but I have to say as spring um, approaches and is here and it's becoming more and more beautiful out, my neighborhood is almost as if nothing is going on. And it's busy, it's really busy. You can't really walk down the street without um, being next to people at all times. And so I have found, I've always found my back, I rent an apartment, but I have a backyard. I'm very lucky. Um, it's just become increasingly more important to me to be back there. And, um, we've been gardening back there a little bit, um, seeds and, um, working with the garden that was here and overgrown before we came, which was mostly set up by this woman, Irene, who lived in this house decades ago. We learned about Irene through our neighbors. So I have to say like being in my yard, being with the plants, being with the fruit trees, yeah, it's been really, really a beautiful thing. Yeah, I mean, uh, as someone who's living in the suburbs, like the privilege of a backyard is something that I'm very, very aware of. And uh, uh, I have to admit that if, yeah, yeah, it's just a wonderful, wonderful thing to have, um, especially during this time. It's, I, I'm, I, I think the first thing that they should open, if they're gonna open anything is public parks, because I think everyone should have access to nature. I know. And I keep, well, we live quite near High Park and we um, walk there quite a bit. And I've just been finding that even it becomes so busy that it's hard to not be really close up on people's space all the time. So I keep having visions of ordering like a kiddie pool from the home hardware down the street or something and having like a kiddie pool in my backyard (laughs) because I can't imagine being stuck in my apartment and yard for the whole Toronto summer. 
You know, I mean, I miss swimming so much. It's like the thing that brings me joy and all the pools are closed. And so uh, maybe I will order myself a kiddie pool, but it, but that's not really swimming. That's more like just uh, sitting in your own it's film. Knitting. It's knitting. <laughs> yeah. but, oh, I'm glad you love swimming. We should, we should do a fat swim sometime. I would love that. Me I would too. love that. All right. And I'll end as I always do by asking you, how do you think disability can save the world? Gosh, I think disability is saving the world by reminding us to nurture our interdependence, um, um, by, by putting um, the voices and leadership of um, people with lived experience um, at, at the center, and by showing us that um, slowness, that pacing, that, um, that timing is important. And sometimes that means it's unimportant. Mm. Um, yeah, I think those are real gifts that I've received from disability community and disability studies. That's wonderful. Thank you, Tracy, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Katie. It's been really fun. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks again to Tracy for coming on the show. Get in touch by sending me an email at disabilitysavestheworld at gmail.com. If you're interested in learning more about me, check out my website, fadyshenuda.com. This podcast is hosted, produced, and edited by me, Fady Shenuda. Thank you for listening and see you next time on Disability Saves the World.